Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. morning. It's the 28th of October. It is Thursday, which means that our friend Ben Johnson is up next or now. But I have one headline to share with you before we jump to our conversation with Ben. Okay, two, actually. The first one I am uh, is a celebratory note in the where in the word conversation are you. Also, a where in the world is the word conversation. So version is a Bible app. Um, and I'm celebrating with you, Version, that they are right on the verge of their half a billionth download of the Bible in a decade. So a half a billion people have downloaded a you version of the Bible uh, in in the last decade, and I'm celebrating that because a half a billion people reading the Bible is a good thing. All right. Um, now for news that might you might find <clears throat> somewhat troubling. So the United States has amended the U.S. passport to include the option of X as a gender designation. Now, that doesn't mean that you are um, identifying yourself as a Christian on your passport, which is what the X in Greek stands for. No, no, this is an X as in you do not want to identify as male or female. So the State Department announced changes to the U.S. passport yesterday morning, allowing passport holders to list their gender as X. Uh, and also, you, uh, those who are self-selecting um, X as a gender on their passport um, or selecting a gender, male or female, that does not align with other, quote-unquote, documentation, no longer require any sort of medical certification in order to do that. So you can now just self-select uh, M, F, or X with no supporting documentation uh, related to a U.S. passport. Um, the United States joins a dozen countries allowing this uh, third gender option. And it's not only a third gender option. That's just the language of the Associated Press. This is a an option to not identify as having a gender. Advocates see this as a confirmation of, quote, identity and say it, quote, will allow people to travel as their authentic selves. So the language there is important. There's identity language. There's um, authenticity language. You will hear the language of lived reality. Um, you will also um, maybe hear about a person whose name is Jessica Stern, uh, who I didn't know was out there, but she is the U.S. Special Diplomatic Envoy for LGBTQ rights. She represents the United States not only here but around the world, advocating, uh, among other things, a third gender marker for non-binary, intersex, and gender non-conforming people. So when you think about the things that your tax dollars support, um, we are supporting a U.S. employee uh, who serves around the world as the U.S. diplomatic, U.S. special diplomatic envoy for LGBTQ rights. And so part of what's going on here is U.S. advocacy around the world um, related to this particular identity agenda. And so I think there's an opportunity for conversation here. Um, this is not a, you know, set your hair on fire uh, kind of event, 
My concern is that um, once you move in this direction, once a nation begins advocating that other nations accept this reality, which is what a passport does, right? It enables you to travel around the world. Um, And so we are now advocating as the United States of America that other countries receive people as gender non-binary or non-conforming. And so we're not just talking about, you know, people living here manifesting their own reality. We are actually now advocating that others participate and promote, um, receive something that does not align with reality. Mm -hmm. There you go. This is the challenge uh, in which we now live. All right. The stated goal of the Biden administration plainly put is to, quote, change the way Americans live, end quote. That's up next with Ben Johnson. We'll be right back. This is my right. Ben Johnson is back. He's a media reporter for The Daily Wire. You can find what he's writing at dailywire.com. Ben, good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you as always. Thank you. So today's the day President Biden really wants the social spending package to pass before he sets out on his trip overseas because that package includes uh, some climate legislation that uh, he really wants to be able to, to hold out to others around the world. Um, I I doubt he's going to get that vote before he um, boards Air Force One, but um, it's dependent upon figuring out how to pay for it. So what do you know about the proposal to tax unrealized gains of billionaires? Yeah, they're calling this the uh, billionaire's income tax or things of that sort. That's the way it's being marketed. But uh, there are two components to it. One of them has to do with corporations and forcing uh, very wealthy corporations to pay at least 15 percent even if uh, they would not have paid that because of other loopholes that uh, have been written written into uh, tax law over the years. So, for example, you've heard that Amazon paid nothing in taxes, and uh, you know it seems to be a big scandal because of how much money it made. The reason Amazon didn't pay any taxes is because there was a loophole written into the law a few years ago that said if, if we want to encourage companies to make their their employees part owners. So if you give stock to your employees then we'll write that off against your taxes. Amazon did that in a mass scale. Uh, anyone who works at an Amazon warehouse knows that. And then over the course of the pandemic, you saw the, the value of that stock skyrocket. So it wiped out their their tax liability. So, uh, you know, essentially you have lawmakers setting up uh, Amazon for failure, setting themselves up for failure, and then blaming someone else for the consequences of their actions. That's one part of it. The part that's really uh, concerning from uh, both an economic and moral standpoint, is the idea that they will tax the uh, unrealized gains of people who make a a certain amount of money. And the idea is that if you are a billionaire, that uh, the so-called unrealized gains are stocks, bonds, real estate is mentioned in some instances. If you own that, then they will tax you on the value of it, even if you don't sell it. Now, that's that's perplexing because you don't actually have that money. Think of it this way. You if, if you're a homeowner, uh, if you if you own your home and when you bought it, it was worth, you know, let's say you bought it in the uh, 1970s when it was worth seventy thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars. Today, it's worth one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. They're going to tax you as though you own one hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of cash. 
except that you don't unless you sell it. So the money isn't there. Uh, it, it simply does not exist. It's the same way with stocks. When you buy a stock, the, the value fluctuates. Some years it's very high. Some years it's very low. And they're going to charge you on the difference even if you don't sell and don't have the cash on hand. So it's, it's sort of immoral, uh, really, to tax someone on something that they own but have not sold, on money that they don't have. Uh, and in addition to that, then uh, Mitt Romney was, was talking about this uh, just the other day. He said, if you do that, Millionaires and billionaires will simply move their investments to some other area uh, where they will not be taxed. When Mitt mm -hmm. Romney tells you what rich people will do with money, listen. Yeah, exactly. He was a former no, hedge fund investor, yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. All right, so um, if they don't get this, and I suspect that they won't get this um, because, you know, there's a lot of billionaires who happen to be Democrats, um, I don't suspect they're going to get this. So um, – the question will then be, how are they going to pay for this multi-trillion dollar social spending spree? Um, I am hearing that there is going to be new taxes on cigarettes and other tobacco products and things like that. Um, but we're all paying more right now for everything. Let's talk about inflation um, and let's talk about the uh, the cost of our Thanksgiving meal. Like everything related to Thanksgiving is going to cost more. Yeah. Well, the good news is it will focus us on what we really need to be thankful for, which is all our blessings from the Lord. Uh, but we will have uh, certainly a, a less abundant harvest around the table uh, for most people. Uh, the New York Times multiple sources have reported that this is going to be the most expensive meal in the history of Thanksgiving. Uh, you simply had skyrocketing inflation. Poultry, meat is up 10 percent uh, in the month of September over last year. And, of course, the inflation has not halted. Uh, food in general has risen in terms of its price this year over last year. Uh, and in part, that's due to uh, supposedly uh, because of uh, increased demand. But really, I, I think what you're seeing is uh, uh, simply inflation reaching its tentacles into the economy and pulling up every single bit of your food basket. Uh, and that's true, whatever it may be, uh, you know, whether it's whether it's the components of a Thanksgiving dinner or simply what you eat day in and day out. Uh, and so and, uh, you know, that's that's very much concerning for those of us who uh, you know, are simply trying to get by day to day. It's especially concerning if you're concerned about the poor, because, you know, the, the poor uh, spend a disproportionately higher percentage of their income just trying to provide for themselves. This kind of an increase falls disproportionately on them. It harms them. And uh, it's, it's the biggest uh, story that has not been reported yet, the way that this is uh, taking food off the table of the poor. Yeah, it's really it's it's really staggering. All right, I have another food um, question for you when we come back from a very brief break, and I'm gonna I'm gonna posit it this way: Is there a constitutional right to food? I'm gonna ask Ben Johnson that question next. He is the rights writer. We'll be right back. No. All right. Well, we're talking about food with uh, Ben Johnson, who I don't know, maybe is a foodie. We haven't ever had that conversation. We're going to talk about a proposal in the state of Maine. So in the November 2 election, which is coming up uh, here in just a couple of days, voters in the state of Maine are going to be asked if they favor amending the state's constitution, quote, to declare that all individuals have a natural, inherent and inalienable right to grow, raise, harvest, produce and con consume the food of their own choosing for their own nourishment, sustenance, bodily health, and well-being. Okay, I, I just have to tell you, Ben, as a gardener, 
um, as a person who has a little orchard, as a person who uh, not only raises, you know, a couple of uh, head of grass fed beef on our own land uh, and and has hens who lay eggs. Um, I you it might not surprise you. Like, I think this is a great idea. And you know, uh, first of all, I'm not discriminating enough to be a foodie. But uh, second of all, <laughs> it's uh, I, I'm more of an omnivore, I guess. But uh, second of all, uh, I, I am totally in in agreement with you on this. I think that uh, the American people have a right to eat what they want, to consume what they want uh, in in terms of food, and to grow. Uh, you know, the, part of what's at issue here is that there are zoning ordinances and so on that uh, prevent people from having a from having in roosters. Urban areas. Yeah, from having telling roosters. you, it's, lots of yeah. lots of people have are discriminating against the rooster. Right, uh, and and, and under, you know, we understand that uh, you know they wake people up and so on, but uh, you know this this is an area where I think the more that we encourage this, the better that we are. We're encouraging self reliance. We're encouraging uh, an adequate, available, locally sourced food supply for people. And that keeps us uh, independent from huge sources, from uh, you know the mega farm industry, and uh, in in other areas, uh, you know you can assure the quality of what you're producing. If you're into organic food, you can produce it. Uh, you can produce things up to your own standards rather than uh, standards that have to be signed off by other people and are sometimes somewhat opaque. So I think all of that is positive. Uh, in in that sense, you have a right. Now I I have to say. You have a right to grow your own food. You don't necessarily have the right to impose yourself by taking food from others. I, that should go without saying. Hmm. Okay. So um, I I want to follow this because I think this is a great thing. And um, yeah, so I think there should be future farmers of America in every household. I think there should be a resurgence of 4-H. So there you go. That would be Carmen's advocacy of this particular point. Now, let's talk about the rights of parents. This is a big topic of conversation across the country, um, leading the headlines in the state of Virginia. Um, Let's just talk about the rights of parents when it comes to public education and some of the sort of opposing talking points on this topic. Rightly so. And I guess the most concerning uh, headline that I saw about this was from the Washington Post. Uh, came out now. It's it's an opinion piece. But uh, the opinion piece is headlined as follows. Parents claim they have the right to shape their kids' school curriculum. They don't. Uh, now, that's funny because I thought that we, we certainly have a, an obligation to pay for that curriculum. Uh, we have the right to vote for the members of the school board who choose that curriculum. But uh, allegedly, we have absolutely no say or ability to influence what's being taught to our children. Uh, and really, whenever you hear school educators or others uh, who are in politics speak about our children, you got to correct them. Uh, I want people to listen for this. Uh, you'll often hear people talk about our children. These are not our children. I I have not had a relationship with these people. These are my children. These are your children. Uh, The state does not have an inalienable right or responsibility to raise them. Parents do. The scriptures say that the parents are the most important figure in terms of raising children and educating them. And the real issue here, uh, by the way, that article from the Post says that uh, you know, parents are concerned because they'll, uh, children will learn values that the parents don't want them to learn. But, you know, education is about children learning to think on their own. I want you to flag that, too, because schools don't teach children to think for themselves. Schools teach children either to understand and believe what you believe or to understand and believe what the administrators believe. And so it's a question of whose values are taught. 
And Scripture tells us we are supposed to teach uh, the way of the Lord when we rise up and when we go to bed and when we walk in the way. And every opportunity, we teach the words and the ordinances and the statutes and the understanding that has been passed down in the wisdom of our Lord and Savior. That's our responsibility. It does not belong to any other organization, nor can it be outsourced except in part, uh, as we understand. And that that right is inalienably, inalienably placed in the hands of parents who control the school curriculum. Yeah. Uh, if, if you just survey what's going on um, in, in public high schools, uh, uh, there was a drag ball at a uh, at a high school in Vermont. There um, there was uh, some just awful sexualized pep rally um, at a uh, at a high school. Um, I, I just it's crazy out there, and people need to be paying attention. Um, all right, so one more thing before we let you go: um, in the state of Ohio, um, there are a lot of people running for uh, for the U.S. Senate. I think a surprising number, and they're all vying for evangelical votes. What's going on there? They really are. And, uh, you know, we have uh, an open seat because of Rob Portman retiring. And uh, J.D. Vance is uh, one of the Republicans who is running. Many people know him from his hillbilly elegy. There's also uh, a figure who's uh, been very well known in state politics, Josh Mandel, uh, who is Jewish but has a lot of uh, attraction uh, for evangelical voters when it comes to several issues. He's very conservative. Uh, and, and there are numerous others as well. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I may have to live under whoever wins, so I, I don't want to say anything <laughs> too too much. But uh, let, let me simply say that there are several excellent candidates, uh, all of whom would be uh, not only good for the evangelical movement and good for evangelical Christians, but also would be uh, quite candidly an improvement upon their predecessor. So here's what excites me about this. Like, I will I will just confess that I might have been one of the hand ringers in terms of like, no good people are going to run for political office in the current environment. Like, nobody is going to want to run for school board. Nobody is, is going to want to run for Congress. Nobody's going to want to run for Senate. In fact, a lot of people, a lot of good people can continue to put themselves forward, to put themselves out there to, you know, to say, you know what, I will... Um, I will embrace what I recognize as a higher calling to serve my community, my state, my nation um, in times where, you know, we need really good people um, serving in in all levels and layers of uh, of governance. And so I just I'm just grateful that there's people running, people of substance, people of character um, and that the people of Ohio, you know, have uh, have some good people to choose between and among. So I just wanted to highlight that this morning. It's an embarrassment of riches, and we're blessed to have them. So thank you for highlighting it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that's Ben Johnson. You can find him at dailywire.com. You can also follow him on Twitter. He is the rights writer. Thank you, brother. Thank you. God bless. You too. We'll be right back. All right, uh, two things here. First of all, are you in the Sioux Empire? Are you in Sioux Falls? Are you around Sioux Falls? Could you be in Sioux Falls at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon for a cup of coffee with me? So I'm, did I say Tuesday? It's Tuesday. It's going to be Tuesday at 4 p.m. in Sioux Falls. And so if you say to yourself, yep, yep, I'm there or I could be there and I'd like to meet Carmen for a cup of coffee, all you have to do is text the word meet, M-E-E-T, Meet to 877-933-2484. I don't know. We have a handful of spots left. So if you would like to join in 
a cup of coffee and have a conversation with Carmen, that'd be me. Uh, text the word meat to 877-933-2484. That's Tuesday in Sioux Falls. All right, misinformation. We hear a lot about misinformation. We hear a lot about disinformation. So Renee DeResta wrote a piece in The Atlantic that I found fascinating. And first of all, if you don't know who Renee DeResta is, um, she's worth knowing. She's a researcher at the Stanford Internet Observatory. She is one of those smarty pants girls that I absolutely think we ought to be paying attention to. Um, So Renee says it's worse than misinformation. It's not misinformation. It's amplified propaganda. She calls it ampliganda. And I thought, you know what? We should talk with her about that. We should find out more. So next up, my conversation with Renee DeResta. We'll be right back. Often you look at a teenage girl wearing a skimpy outfit and you think she's trying to attract undesirable attention. But in her mind, she's thinking something totally different. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. In talking with young girls, I found more often than not, she wasn't thinking about dressing provocatively. She wanted to fit in. Our culture is obsessed with the sensual, and media influences have pressured girls to dress more seductively than ever. So the next time your daughter shows up ready for school wearing clothes that raise eyebrows, don't jump to conclusions. Explain why you're uncomfortable with her choice. Try to understand your teen's world and the pressures on her. Help her choose some cool alternative fashions that don't compromise her innocence. Want to bring Mark to your church or community? Find out how to request an event in your area when you visit parentingtodaysteens.org. Wow, what a delight to welcome Renee DeResta today. She is the Technical Research Manager at Stanford Internet Observatory. It's a cross-disciplinary program of research, teaching, and policy engagement for the study of abuse in current information technologies. So let me just uh, say this. Um, Renee could go up and down the ladder today with um, the Senate Intelligence Committee. She could do so with anybody in the realm of of what's happening on social media and media networks. She's also a mom, and so we could talk about cooking and crafting and why we need to have better surge protectors in our offices. But today, we're going to have her help us understand what is happening in the world of social media and where it's taking us in terms of places we don't want to go. Renee DeResta, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for having me. So your depth and breadth of the knowledge on the topics that we're going to cover today uh, goes way beyond what most of us could even begin to uh, to touch our toe into. So we're going to scratch the surface, and I know I'm going to ask you questions about issues that um, for you are, you know, you've been thinking about these and talking about them for a very long time. For some folks listening, all they know is that they're they're at risk on social media in ways that they don't understand. Um, And so if you could help us roam around in misinformation, disinformation, and what you have, uh, I think, coined the term ampliganda. So just jump into this conversation wherever feels comfortable for you. Sure. So we uh, so mis and disinformation are are very old uh, terms for very old phenomenon. Uh, Misinformation is usually used to mean something that is 
spread that is inadvertently wrong. So in the context of social media, um, you know, we're all sharing content constantly. We're all posting content constantly. We want to be part of a community. We want to share information with our friends. Um, and misinformation oftentimes is shared out of a genuine desire to help somebody, right? You see something on the internet, it concerns you. Uh, maybe it's talking about some sort of uh, toxic ingredient is something that, that actually kind of goes viral pretty often. You know, there's a, a arsenic in Cheerios kind of stories that kind of come out. And misinformation is, is information where people are spreading it. It turns out not to be true. So they're spreading it because they think that they're helping people. They think that they're helping their community um, not be harmed. And, and so they're inadvertently spreading bad information. The disinformation dynamic is different. It's where people are spreading information very deliberately with the intent to mislead. And so oftentimes the people who are spreading disinformation are not, <clears throat> excuse me, are not ordinary people. They're people with an agenda. And so that's where you know you hear stories of, for example, um, state actors, right? Uh, governments, for example, that try to target the citizens of another country with false information about their political leaders. Uh, what we saw with Russia in 2016 was creating accounts that were fake, fake people pretending to be Americans and then spreading information to other Americans who were really members of those communities. So pretending to be a fake Black Lives Matter activist to manipulate real Black Lives Matter activists, pretending to be a fake Texas secessionist to manipulate and rile up real people who believe that Texas should secede. And oftentimes with disinformation, the material being spread is not something that you can uh, falsify is how we say it. Not, it's not a fact that is wrong, it's a particular uh, propaganda. It's an information with an agenda designed to rile people up to make them very angry. But it's not something where you can point to it and say that particular fact is wrong. So again, misinformation and disinformation have always existed. It's just that now that they're on social platforms, there are some really different dissemination dynamics. So ways in which this information spreads from person to person and community member to community member because we all have the power to decide what we're going to share. We all have the power to hit that retweet button. And so we participate in this process of spreading information where in older media environments, it was much more broadcast. You would see something on television, you would hear it on the radio. You might talk about it with your friends, but you didn't have the power to hit that share button and reach people potentially all over the world. So I um, listened to and watched your testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee, um, which I think now would go back a, a handful of years. But in there, you talk about the way the content is created, tested, and hosted on platforms like YouTube, Reddit, and Pinterest. Then it's pushed on platforms like Twitter and Facebook, targeted at the most receptive. Then you talked about trending algorithms being gamed to make content go viral. And then that's the stuff that's picked up and covered by mainstream media which then results in search engines serving it up again. And then that's probably what a person like me, you know, average Joe out here, is clicking on and sending out to others. But it started with somebody who created content that was um, designed to not just mislead, but to actually lead us in a particular 
behavioral direction. Am I understanding how it works? Yes, that's an excellent description, actually. So and I'm glad it came through in the Senate testimony. <laughs> that Again, that dynamic of content creation. Uh, so anyone can create content. This is actually the beauty of the internet, right? We have this explosion of unique culture, of, of unique dynamics, you know, new forms of video, new forms of of images that are very much a, a part of internet culture as opposed to, again, prior information mediums. And so we want to see that creativity, that explosion in people expressing themselves. The challenge though, is that anytime you have a system or a tool, many, many people will use it for good. And then some smaller handful of people will use it for evil. And so the people who are using it with the intent to manipulate oftentimes are very, very good at understanding how the distribution mechanisms work. So if you want to get something trending, what we would see in 2015 timeframe or so is people would create a whole lot of fake accounts. And Twitter's trending algorithm at the time, they have since fixed this, but at the time did not filter out fake accounts or did not do what we call underweight them in determining what was trending. So there were a lot of these accounts and maybe they were created yesterday. They weren't real people. Uh, they weren't you know, real people expressing a political opinion, for example, but because the trending algorithm would decide what to surface based on the number of tweets in a hashtag or the number of times a particular URL was shared, perhaps, what you would start to see was you could game that that feature and capture the public's attention in a very inauthentic way. And so the response to that from the tech platforms was to start thinking more what we call adversarially. When a platform rolls out a feature, how are the small handful of bad actors going to try to manipulate it? Because again, what we don't want to see necessarily is the shutting down of all sorts of features that enable this kind of expression and this kind of you know, cultural growth and the rise of very beneficial movements and things. But what we do want to do is recognize that with any power like that, the power to reach millions of people, there are going to be people incentivized to use it who are antisocial. And so how do we think about like the, um, the trade-offs of balancing freedom of expression with coming up with policies that minimize harms or with technological solutions that reduce the ease with which people can manipulate the public. Mm. Um, all right. Uh, if you're listening right now, you know how happy I am to uh, know that Renee DiResta is in, in the world and on, on the job uh, related to this. You can find her at ReneeDiResta.com. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Resuming our conversation with Renee Duresta, you can find her and links to um, other conversations that she's had and things that she has written at ReneeDuresta.com. So, Renee, uh, you, you have a background in, this seems uh, probably random uh, in light of the conversation we've just had, but um, you, your background is in supply chain, like the actual movement of goods around the globe. So, wow, do you want to comment on what's going on with the supply chain? <laughs> <laughs> I my my background was actually in tech. There's a uh, you know one of the great things about Silicon Valley actually is that the you can bring together people who have very different types of expertise and skill sets and 
bring them to bear on solving a problem. So I've had a, a few kind of, uh, you know, seemingly random, unconnected <laughs> career areas. No, but it's good, um, right? Like you're the that. person that comes to the table with your skill set and applies it to whatever the challenge is right there. And that's just so cool. That's, I think that's, I appreciate you recognizing that. I think that's the, um, that's the, the thing that I've always really appreciated about Silicon Valley is that ability for you know, people who have very different ways of viewing the world. I started a supply chain logistics startup with um, two other folks. One was a person who had experienced a challenge, right? Who had been trying to move uh, goods across the, uh, you know, across the world and was, and actually found it almost impossible to secure a container. And then another person who had worked in supply chain at Apple. And so his entire job actually was, was managing a massive supply chain and understanding trade-offs between ocean freight and air freight. Uh, and then my experience was in being just very curious around, uh, I, had, I had spent a bunch of time in financial markets. Um, and so my experience was in thinking about how do you create efficiency in contracts? Were there ways to create new types of uh, of supply chain processes so that companies didn't have to go through long-term tenders and the supply chain could be potentially more adaptive, more, more uh, nimble. And so that was where that, um, so, so <laughs> in a funny way, my experience on that team um, was more from the, uh, the, the data science and uh, could we think about new and novel ways to create contracts point of view. It's been remarkable though, to, to watch now a couple of years out of, um, of working on that team and to see the, impact of container shortages and inefficiencies in the supply chain on, uh, you know, the experience that so many companies and also individuals are having today. Uh, we, funny enough, um, we had actually ordered some furniture <laughs> for our kids' room in May of 2020, and uh, it still has not found a container and made its way to us. So <laughs> one day, yeah. I hope. You, you know. need like grandpa on the job to go build something. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. Yeah. It's totally crazy. So you are a real mom. Um, you have real concerns about the things that concern all of us who have kids uh, kids at home. Um, you love to cook. You love to craft. I All of those things like make you real. So thank you for including them um, in in sort of your publicly facing uh, information. Let me ask you about that. So how do we how do we engage in this world that, uh, you know, anybody can Google anybody at any moment? Um, how do we engage in that in a way that is safe? It's a great question. Um, so I have three kids. They are seven, four, and just turned one. And, you know, and there are, as you, as you note, I mean, I think they're a huge motivating factor in my life. I started looking at the dynamics of anti-vaccine activism online when the Disneyland measles outbreak hit California, you know, right around the age when my son was still too young to get his measles shot. And so it was a very personal experience for me, actually, to see the impact that anti-vaccine misinformation was having on my community, and then to experience it not as a, you know, as a, a bystander interested in the statistics or the, you know, the, the network dynamics of it, but to really feel it acutely as a mom saying, how do I protect my own child in this environment where this kind of misinformation is leading increasing percentages of community members to make bad decisions that put the entire community at risk. And so I think that, um, you know, that, that experience as a parent is, is very transformative. My son, my oldest, who now is um, almost eight, you know, he wants to be on the internet because he's too little to realize the bad aspects of it. 
And we've tried to shelter him a bit from that. And so he wants to go on YouTube and he wants to watch, you know, origami videos is his latest thing. He, during the pandemic, (laughs) we were of course homeschooling and (laughs) trying to keep two kids and a newborn um, engaged while working a full-time job, which I think was an experience that, that, that many moms had um, over the last year and a half. And the easiest thing to do, of course, is to say, yeah, here's your screen. Um, But then we had to come up with what were the sort of safe ways for us to do that. And so we did really try to, we would go and we would download YouTube videos for him um, or download other videos for him so that he could watch them on a machine, but wouldn't hit the kind of unexpected content that pops up occasionally through autoplay or, you know, recommendation engines. So we tried to foster his curiosity, let him tell us what topics he wanted, but then we would go and we would um, try to, you know, bring the content down locally as opposed to just giving him internet access. Um, He would constantly find new and novel ways to search. So even before he could type or read, he would use the voice commands. So (laughs) we found in this funny way, it was like this little adversarial actor in our house where (laughs) no matter how many different uh, approaches we tried to, um, you know, to, to, to coming up with solutions, he was just very curious and would, would find ways around them. Um, so that was an interesting experience. And so what we've tried to do is emphasize the importance of balance and the importance of um, not being on a screen for too long. You know, we really, we use limits on apps and things. And then for helping him find information, you know, he, he does know, we, we enforce pretty regularly, actually, that there are tricky people on the internet and people who try to tell you wrong things or who try to make you click on things um, that are going to, you know, either hurt you in some way or, I mean, one example was um, he downloaded malware onto my laptop, you know? <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> because he said, well, you know, the, the button popped up and I clicked the, the X, I clicked the no, but of course the way that some spammers work, the, the entire bad window looks like a no button. And so he thought he was doing the right thing by clicking the no button. But of course he was inadvertently continuing along, you know, down this, down this path to downloading malware. So it's been very interesting as a person in, uh, in tech and my husband's a a software engineer. um, So we're both in tech and trying to think through how do we create limits within our own home where we enable him to use the internet for what it, its best, um, you know, its, its best incarnation is, which is as a phenomenal source of information, a phenomenal tool to spur creativity, while not, um, you know, it, giving him a, a total free for all where he's spending twenty four seven on the internet in an unsupervised way, um, despite the fact that it, it is really a challenge for I think for working parents in the in the age of COVID to feel that they're both um, you know, helping their children have a rich experience despite limitations, um, you know, while also not wanting to kind of just hand them a screen and, uh, you know, get back to work. So that, that's been our, that's been our challenge and, and our way of dealing with it is just to try to encourage them to do active things. Also here, take a programming class, take a typing class, do something where you're not just sitting there passively consuming someone's YouTube videos, but the YouTube videos are inspiring your creativity? How do we use the internet as a source of inspiration as opposed to passive entertainment? Yeah, we need to develop like master class for kids, like a, a thing that would draw them in in a way that adults are being drawn into learning um, as well. All right. So I could talk to you all day. It is an absolute joy. I kind of want to know, you know, where Bob the Cow came from. And I kind of want to standardize <laughs> book sizes for children's books just for him. So you you fascinate me. I love that you're voraciously curious. You're so smart about so many things and you're applying them to real issues 
Um, and so thank you for your willingness to come and talk with us. Um, if you ever just want to talk to average people out there in the world, that's who's listening um, here to Mornings with Carmen. And so thank you for connecting us with information uh, about social media and technology that we otherwise just we just wouldn't have access to understanding it because we're not reading wired. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's really great to to connect and to help people think about the the things that I find fascinating. So I appreciate the opportunity. We really appreciate it. All right, that's Renee Duresta. You guys can find her online at ReneeDuresta.com. We'll be right back. Throw me like a stone in the water. Watch the mud rise up. Dress me like a lamb for the slaughter. All right. Uh, again, thank you to each and every one of you who texts in during the show and at other odd hours of the day and night. Um, I love reading where you are in the word, where you are in the world, how God is using you um, to reach into the lives of others. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so very much. Um, people are uh, engaged in ministry in a myriad of ways in the world, and God is using you. And I don't want you to lose sight of that today. Like amidst all the headlines of the day and the things that might cause you to roll your eyes or shake your head or uh, or even wag your finger, right? So let's be sure that we are people whose fingers are interlaced in prayer, that we are uh, yoked to Christ and therefore yoked to one another, that we are walking our faith out into the world that God so loves and doing so purposefully, like intentionally, moving into the world as bearers of light, as agents of grace, as ministers of reconciliation. Um, We have a a culture that's in an identity crisis, individually and collectively. Like, there's a reason that people who don't know who they are individually constitute a culture that that doesn't know what it's in the world to accomplish. And so let's be people who have real clarity today about who we are as the image bearers of the living God. And let's have real clarity about who everybody else is as well, because that is true of every person you will meet, whether they know it or not. And so let's be people who help people understand who they are because of who God is and how great he is and beautiful and wonderful. All right, his grace is sufficient for the living of this day. Be mindful of that. God's grace is sufficient for the living of this day, and his mercies are new every morning. He loves you. He loves you. He loves the sound of your voice, so turn to him with a word of prayer. He loves your attention, so turn to his word and seek him. Um, And he loves your willingness to submit to the active work of his spirit. So let's do that as well. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.